You want to take his face? Yes. His face. Oh. The eyes. Nose. Skin. It's coming off. No more drugs for that man. An FBI agent assumes the identity and the face of a terrorist in order to stop a deadly attack. But things get more complicated when the terrorist takes the face of the FBI agent as well. Join us as we chat about books without covers, a surgeon who cuts hair, and how much money oil rig workers make. Then we find out if 1997's face-off stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone and welcome to the Test of Time. I'm James Brief and joining me as always is my buddy Alan Noah. Hello, that's me, Alan Noah. Or maybe I'm James Brief and you're Alan Noah. Well, if we swap faces, we had a tumultuous fight to the death and there were a few doves flying in a pivotal church scene, you might have today's movie Face Off. Right, yeah, that was basically what I was alluding to, yeah. Oh, Oh, that makes a lot more sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, Al, we're about halfway through the year. We're halfway through 2022. And one of the fun things that we do on this podcast is we have these box office predictions that we do at the beginning of the year, trying to figure out the top three films. You know, uh, we're halfway through. We're getting to some of the big summer films. And we've had some good picks so far. We both picked The Batman. It's done very well so far. Yeah. But I just glossed over Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, you picked that, and that, that did fantastic. But, yeah. you know, both of us completely overlooked what really might be this year's number one film, Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of dismissive about it as a legacy sequel, which is a weird word. But, you know, these sequels that come out 30 plus years later, I didn't really think anyone would care. But people cared. People love it. And yeah, it's doing very well. I haven't seen it yet. Did you go? I did, actually. Listeners to this podcast might recall that I didn't really like Top Gun. For some reason, it just didn't click with me. And I have to tell you that the this latest film, the, the sequel, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I mean, this was the kind of thing I really missed. It was just a really well-done blockbuster. It checked every box. Was it the greatest film I've ever seen? No, far from it. Did it check every box in a satisfying film to see in a theater? Yes. Uh, I mean, it was airplanes, no CGI, which in a weird way is so refreshing these days. And strangely, like we used to go to see films in the 90s to see all of the computer animation. And now it's kind of flipped and it's like, look what we could do with raw graphics. It's, It's pretty cool. I've heard good things. I just haven't gotten around to going to the movie. I might. Um, uh, My son Eli really wants to go see the Bob's Burgers movie. So that's a little bit uh, higher on the priority list right now. You know, I could see seeing that film if you're a big Bob's Burgers fan and you see it in a crowded theater. Because, 
you know, there's nothing like a theater with, with a great comedy. If it works and you're there on an opening weekend and everybody's laughing, you have 300 people having a great time together. That is kind of pre-pandemic stuff. I've not been to a, a comedy in the theater in years. I feel like we've seen a couple of comedies. Uh, we saw Ghostbusters Afterlife in the theater. I don't know if that counts as a comedy or not. not I don't think so. Yeah, it's not like a broad comedy. But we've already missed the Bob's Burger movie opening weekend. So, oops. But we'll definitely go see Thor Love and Thunder in the theater. That's a guarantee. But let's talk about this week's movie, Face Off, which was directed by John Woo. It's a movie that is turning 25, and I saw it on my list of anniversaries. And I was like, let's watch Face Off, because I remember seeing it once. And honestly, all I remembered about it was the concept. I mean, really, that's what this movie is. It's an idea. It's a pitch. It's a log line. And then they just, you know, made a movie out of that. That's what people that maybe even didn't see this film in 1997, they had heard of this film. Definitely. But my girlfriend had never seen this film. She had never heard of it. What? Yeah, she had just actually never seen this film. And I took a little video here. We're going to play the audio here. This is me asking her what she thinks this film is about. Give me just a, a guess. Why is it called Face Off? Because the two main characters are going to literally face each other off or compete with each other in some way. So you don't think that has anything to do with hockey and a face-off? Correct. Okay. So technically she's right. I mean, she's not wrong. That's exactly what we said when we looked at the video afterwards. We were we were thinking, you're exactly right. They do face off mm-hmm. and there's no hockey in this film at all. Yeah. As uh, uh, listeners last week might remember, this film is not called... Face Off, and, and to use proper uh, Alan Noah terminology, what is the proper name of this film, Al? Face Slash Off. And a true story, uh, that was John Woo that wanted to put the slash in there because he didn't want people to think it was a hockey-related film. I don't see how adding the slash makes it not hockey-related. It's still a term that people would associate with the sport of hockey, whether there's a slash in it or not. People don't pay that much attention to grammar. To me... Face-off is just not necessarily a hockey thing. It's a face-off. You know, it's a one-on-one. If this was a movie about a uh, cowboy hat designer and it was called Hat Trick, I associate the term hat trick with hockey. But, you know, face-off, no. I I, I don't think that. But uh, the premise of this film is just bonkers. It is. That is the exact right word. And the movie, if people don't remember, is about Sean Archer, an FBI agent who's obsessed with taking down Caster Troy, an international terrorist, and the man who murdered his son. After capturing Troy, Archer is relieved, until he learns that Troy has planted a bomb somewhere in Los Angeles. Archer must then do the unthinkable. A surgeon gives him Troy's face so he can assume Troy's identity and discover the location of the bomb. Unfortunately, Troy wakes up from his coma and forces the surgeon to give him Archer's face. Troy, posing as Archer, becomes a hero when he disarms his own bomb. He also sleeps with Archer's wife. Meanwhile, Archer, who still looks like the known terrorist Troy, must escape from a maximum security prison and warn the people that he loves. It all leads to one epic... Face off. So I remember that this was a big hit when it came out in 1997. This did very, very well, right? 
Uh, yeah, it actually did very well. It opened uh, on June 27th, 1997, and it opened at number one uh, with $23 million. Uh, it knocked a movie uh, from number one to number three. So that's a, that's a fall. If you and I had this podcast in 1997, we would have predicted easily this movie would have been number one of the year. If it made the top ten, I'd be surprised. Uh, I don't know. Who's in it? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, you got to think of a really notorious flop of Arnold Schwarzenegger's. I don't know. Uh, Eraser? No. Um, it's got a lot of puns in it. Oh, Batman and Robin? Correct. Okay. Yeah, people got sick of that movie pretty damn fast. With an $80 million budget, it earned $110 million domestically and almost $250 million worldwide. So it was a pretty big hit. And this is, as listeners to the uh, Test of Time podcast know, I call this era of the 1990s the Nicolas cage Right. I saw something that this movie is considered part of like his holy trinity or something with like The Rock and Con Air, which is like kind of ridiculous. I mean, I say this as a Jew, I find that like offensive to the holy trinity, like, you know, the religious one in the Christian religion. I mean, come on. Well, to be fair, I mean, Nicolas Cage was never known as an action guy. He was... He was a very good actor. He was in Moonstruck. He was in, uh, I think he got his Oscar a year or two before for Leaving Las Vegas, Raising Arizona. Uh, we reviewed that film. And then, you know, he sort of had kind of a Liam Neeson moment where in The Rock, he's accidentally an action hero. And then people find, you know, they kind of dig it and they like it. So he's in Con Air. He's in uh, Face Off. And then after this film, he hooks up with John Woo again. And he's in this World War II film called Wind Talkers. Then he does a whole string of action sci-fi films. This really, it launches an interesting era of Nicolas Cage's career. But this right now is probably the peak of financial draw uh, Nicolas Cage and it's also peak John Travolta and John Travolta famously has had several peaks and and valleys in his career but this is one of his big peaks he was still writing from his uh, resurrection uh, starting with I guess Pulp Fiction yeah no Pulp Fiction is considered like the rebirth of his career and this was definitely part of that era before, what was that floppy did, Battlefield Earth or something? Yeah, I solidly remember as a young child, John Travolta sort of being this name that he wasn't a joke, but the 80s uh, were not really kind to him. And we right. didn't know Saturday Night Fever, but I just knew that like John Travolta was not with it. And then Look Who's Talking came out when we were kids, and I guess it was a box office hit. He didn't become cool again for someone like us until Pulp Fiction. Yeah. And in this film, he is a villain. He had also been in a, actually a John Woo action film the year before. Maybe we'll review it sometime with uh, Christian Slater. You ever see that one? Broken Arrow, Broken you mean? Arrow. I'm not sure. And like when I was looking up this movie, like Broken Arrow comes up in the you might also like, you know, algorithms, whatever. And I looked at it and I was really trying to remember if I have ever seen that one. And I genuinely don't know. I didn't like watch a trailer or anything to find out. So I'm going to say maybe. And if we do it on the podcast, then I'll see if it seems familiar. I'm pretty sure I wasn't very familiar with John Woo when I first saw this movie. And I remember hearing that like he's a big deal director from Hong Kong. 
but I didn't really know his movies. Yeah, this is the era when uh, I worked at the bookstores, uh, Barnes & Noble, as a teenager. So I'd get all the magazines for free because at the end of the week or month, you, you rip off the cover of a magazine and you return that to the publisher. And then you throw out the magazine, a.k.a. The, you know, the employees get to keep every magazine or newspaper that they want. Why? Why do you have to rip off the cover? On newspapers, we used to rip off the uh, top of the newspaper that basically would just say the New York times and the uh the date and we would just give them a bunch of these slips because basically the new york times hands you like 50 papers they don't know how many to keep giving you so you wind up giving them back like here's 13 of them back so they might next time be like okay you don't need 50 maybe you only need 40 of them but you get credit for those as you give them back so if you ever see a paperback book a paperback novel missing a cover then the bookstore probably reported that book was unsold and they basically sold that off the books or something. So sometimes you'll see in a, in a novel, it says, if you bought this book without a cover, the author didn't get any money from it. Interesting. So and the, the point of all that is I used to read Entertainment Weekly. That was a big uh, yeah, entertainment magazine. It's still around. Not in print form. Really? I ju- yeah. The, the last issue was, I think, April or May of this year. And I was sad because I actually did like reading that magazine, the print version of it. I liked it. I remember in the day too. And they used to talk a lot about John Woo. He was like a very it director. Um, he had done a, a John Claude Van Damme film that was supposed to be like the good one. He did one called uh, Hard Target. And then he did Broken Arrow. And that was like a, a serviceable action film, a big hit. And then, you know, he gets basically $80 million to do whatever the hell he wanted. And I did read that this film, he pretty much was let go from the studios with, with a couple things they, they want to change here and there. But pretty much he, they let him do whatever he wanted. Right. Well, let's talk about the thing with this movie that everyone knows, except for your girlfriend, which is that this movie is about two characters who swap faces. Hence the title. They literally take their faces off and they swap faces. And going into this movie, I really had one question on my mind. And that was, does this movie commit to the bit? In other words, do they take it seriously? Because that's preposterous. It's stupid. And so, like, does the movie know that it's stupid and it's going to tell its story with a wink? Or is it really going to commit to the bit and take it seriously? A hundred percent the latter. Well, yeah. I was surprised at how well this movie does at committing to the bit. They make it a point to treat the whole face-swapping thing seriously. And I have to say that I was thoroughly impressed with their commitment to that part of the story. Yeah, the opening scene to this film, I mean, I did not remember this. It's like this scene of this beautiful father and son on a merry-go-round. It's one of these, this is the greatest day in this father's life kind of things. And uh, there's an assassin who tries to kill the, the father winds up murdering the son. And even the assassin is like, oh, shit, I didn't really mean to do that. And that's the opening scene, a father just in the worst agony you could possibly be in. Well, even though I give this movie credit for committing to the bit, I think that this movie does fail in its commitment to pretty much 
any other form of logic. And it starts in that opening scene because Caster Troy, Nicolas Cage's character, he clearly wants this guy dead. We don't know their backstory, but, you know, early on we figure out that Archer is an FBI agent and he's a terrorist. So, yeah, it makes sense that he would want to kill this guy. He shoots him. The bullet goes through him, kills his son. And then Troy is like, oh, man. And then it fades to black. Why doesn't he just take another shot and kill Archer? Like, he killed this guy's son. I understand that that's shocking, but no one's, like, running over to get the guy. He's positioned far enough away. He's got his sniper rifle. Wouldn't you think if you want this government agent who's on your tail dead and you accidentally kill his son— um, yeah, take the second shot and kill that guy. Make sure that he's dead because this is only going to get worse for you if you leave his kid dead and leave him alive. That is a fantastic point. Uh, the thing I was just boggled by is this is an assassin who seems to have all the time in the world. Why is he assassinating this guy when he's on a merry-go-round? I mean, I don't know the physics of a sniping from 300 yards away, but it seems like just wait till the guy's off the ride. Yeah. It just seems like a very stupid thing to do. But your your logic inconsistency is, uh, is much better, actually. Why doesn't he kill the guy? Right. And if we are supposed to believe that Caster Troy, who we see in this movie, is just like a sociopath and kills people left and right and doesn't think twice about it. But if we are supposed to believe that he does feel a little bit bad about killing the kid and he didn't really mean to kill the kid and it was an honest-to-goodness accident, why are you shooting the guy when he's holding his kid? Wait for him to put the kid down after the merry-go-round ride. I mean, like you're saying, yeah, moving target makes it harder. And then when they're walking to the next ride holding hands, then shoot the guy. I mean, also, by the way, you're still traumatizing this kid. Best case scenario, this kid watches his father die and the kid is fine, but, you know, mentally traumatized for life. I feel like right out of the gate, there are logic problems. And that continues when we get to the whole why that they do this face swap. The reason is, is that when they have their big showdown six years later, Archer and Troy, Troy is maybe seemingly killed or maybe just really badly hurt. And he says something about like, oh, I'm going to unleash hell on LA or something like that. And then much, much later, Archer finds out that this was, in fact, a credible threat, and there really is a bomb. He finds out because there's some, like, evidence on a floppy disk, and it has, like, a really terrible animation of, like, a woman in a bikini. But then, you know, Archer is given this option of, hey, well, you could swap faces with the guy. And he clearly, obviously, correctly says, no, that's insane. I am an FBI agent. I'm going to go do my job now and lean on the people who are his known associates. That makes sense. But he gives up on that really fucking fast. He, like, talks to three people, and they're like, we're not talking to you. And he's like, well, I've done all I could. Meanwhile, they have his brother in custody, and I was kind of thinking of 24 a lot, you know, because Jack Bauer was always chasing down terrorists. And what would Jack Bauer do? He would torture the guy. And in real life, it's questionable of whether you get real good, reliable intel from torturing suspects or if you don't and people just tell you what they want to hear. But I was sort of expecting that and they don't do that at all. 
And meanwhile, torture does exist in this movie. When they get to that prison, that prison guard tortures the shit out of everybody. So it's like, why did you just go to face swapping? It's a very extreme move that really isn't justified, even within this movie's internal logic. That's fair, except the movie's called Face Off. I like the fact that he says no, at least at first, and then you're right, he does give in. Maybe they could have made him uh, say no a second time and given a third. I'm not saying it facetiously. Like, it should have been a little harder to get him to agree. But they really don't get to the Face Off part of this film for like 40 minutes into this film. You know, we glossed over the beginning of the film, but there is a huge action scene for them to capture uh, uh, Troy. And we do get a decent backstory that this guy, Sean Archer, the uh, the good guy, uh, John Travolta, in the beginning of the film, he's completely PTSD'd from his son being killed. He seems to be a horrible father, a horrible husband, a complete grump to all of his co-workers. He just seems to be a miserable son of a bitch, justifiably. I mean, the guy was destroyed seven years, six years earlier. But um, they have to get to it. And the way they did it, I was expecting it to be laughably test of time because it's uh, 1997. They really didn't show anything. And they were very clever with a couple cool little laser creations of of like an ear, which right now looks like 3D printing. So I'll give it that. That's pretty accurate. Dr. Walsh, who is the eponymous owner of the Walsh Institute, he looks the part. Um, the surgery itself, it, it's it's cool. And when they, they, they only show very little like snips of things, what they look like without their faces, only like in the reflection of the glass at certain parts, they were very smart not to try to gross you out, but also not to try to show you something that would look like Nicolas Cage with makeup on. I give them credit for that because I was surprised how kind of creepy and, and I thought it did look pretty cool in my opinion. Yeah, 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 yeah. But here's the thing. There's a bomb, and we see Troy set the bomb early in the movie. And he has set the bomb for, like, 10 days from now. And I don't have experience in setting bombs or defusing them. But from everything I've seen in shows like 24 and every other movie, and even real life, uh, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing, the World Trade Center bombing in 93, people set these bombs to go off right away. Because if you leave a bomb somewhere and it just sits there, that increases the likelihood that someone will find this bomb. This bomb is set to go off in the Los Angeles Convention Center. There's a throwaway line later that the point of the bomb was to assassinate three Supreme Court justices. We don't know why, who paid them, whatever. We do. Uh, it was some kind of white supremacist or something. Because they said, Pollock says to Castor, like, oh, we're still not going to get paid by those Nazi fucks. He okay. says something on those lines. It, it's white supremacists. Fine. But, like, setting a bomb 10 days ahead of time is ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. And honestly, that kind of took me out of the movie because I was like, why is there so long of a lead time and no one addresses it? Honestly, a line or two would have gone a long way of, I can't believe we had to set the bomb so far in advance. I know, but we have to get out of the country now and this was the only time or something. Like two lines of dialogue would have really helped because you just don't set a bomb 10 days in advance. Well, I I agree with you that they should have put a line in, but the line they should have thrown it is that 
the guy must have inside info that says, oh, standard security is the guys come uh, 10 days before the event. So we planned it there 11 days early. You know, something like that. The only way you're going to get into a spot that the president or Supreme Court justices are going to be in is you probably got to take a chance and, and do it early. But it looked like it was just kind of in a closet or something. So it wasn't like it was within a concrete column or something. So I agree. It was, it was not the best looking thing or it should have looked like a mainframe or something. It looked like a bomb. Right. So he has this whole long lead time. He decides to swap faces with Troy, but he doesn't tell anyone. He doesn't tell his wife, which is a huge mistake that impacts the plot later. But also, why does he decide to then go to the maximum security prison that Troy's brother is being held in and not notify anyone in the prison, the warden, one guy in charge, he tells nobody. This is also ridiculously stupid. If they need to question the brother, take the brother out of the maximum security prison and have him talk to his brother somewhere else. Or at least just tell the head warden, hey, listen, this guy who you think is Troy, it's not really, we just need to find about this bomb. Because otherwise, all of the bad things that happen to Archer which you expect because it's a movie and, of course, it's not going to be that easy. But, like, all of that shit could have been avoided and really they should have had the foresight to, like, tell a couple other people. You know, it's interesting you say that. That really did annoy me that he didn't say anything. And there's a throwaway line that his commander says, you can't tell anyone, not even your wife. And, you know, we don't question that. But but he should. Well, I'm watching this other show. I don't know if you watch it. A show called Ozark. Oh, yeah. I finished and, it. And without uh, any uh, plot points, uh, spoilers, there is a government agent that is going to talk to somebody really, really bad that they shouldn't be talking to. And they're not going to wind up telling any one of their bosses before they go see this person. And this sounds insane. You could die. This is a totally dangerous, horrible thing. But in the context of the show, it makes perfect sense why she doesn't tell anyone. Because she explains they wouldn't accept this and I'm going to have to take a chance. You're exactly right with this thing. They could say something like, if they find out, your wife could be in danger. Throw that line in. Your daughter. You only have one kid left, Archer. We have to make sure that she's okay. I understand why one of these kind of black ops that they don't say, but it should have been a little more than, it's a black op operation. You can't tell your wife. Like... The guy's not, like, you know, in SEAL Team 6. Like, he's in the FBI. It's not like he shares everything with his wife, but this is a big one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the whole thing with the 10-day lead time, also, this movie does a bad job of showing the audience the passage of time, like how much time has passed since from the surgery till when he goes to the prison, till when the bomb goes off. Like, the movie does a very, very bad job of time stamping. And of conveying a sense of urgency because he has to go to this prison and he can't tell the warden and he has to get this information from his brother and he has to do it very, very quickly. Like, how is he going to get that information out? I think there's like one throwaway line of like, oh, well, I'll come into the prison in a couple of days and you'll tell me where the bomb is or whatever. But like, it just seems really, really thin for really important information. The entire city of Los Angeles is in danger. There's also a line where one of the guys says that when the bomb goes off, it could be as bad as Gulf War syndrome, which is a phrase that doesn't really stand the test of time. I mean, it goes by quickly. But, like, this is really important, 
And there needs to be very strong, clear plans in place for how this information is going to get out. Another thing is that when this movie came out in 1997, I don't know if face transplants were a thing, but I think the first face transplant was either uh, a guy who uh, shot himself with a shotgun or like a bear attack. It was one I think of the it first was a shotgun. Ones. And I mean, this guy's face, I mean, it was... It didn't look like a, like a human, and his new face it looks like a human. Kind of looks like a Halloween co- Halloween mask. It looks regular person, especially when he wears sunglasses. You're not going to notice. That's all this guy wants, right? But you can't get someone to look like John Travolta. <laughs> like that's completely uh, sci-fi, and you can you can discount this. But even like a tattoo. There's so much swelling for like days and days. Like you have 10 days left here. Like it it just doesn't seem like this is something you could do. But this is something I can look the other way for because this part is science fiction. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, and apparently this film, the original script was it took place in the future. But I I think correctly this film should take place in the present. But they could have had a couple lines here because again, the actual surgery didn't bother me. The one part of the surgery watching this that did bother me is that the surgeon is also a hairdresser like he trims John Travolta's hair to look like Nicolas Cage's hairline that is the surgeon that does that they could have had a line where they brought in a hairdresser I'm sorry Dr. Walsh is not also a hairdresser and John Travolta's hairline looks exactly like Nicolas Cage now and vice versa so Bravo, Dr. Walsh. You, <laughs> like that part, I, I was like, because hey, you might say, oh, you didn't quite see who was doing the uh, the haircutting. No, you specifically see the entire surgical team later because when uh, Caster Joy wakes up, he kills everyone. And there's only like the surgeon, the nurse, and then a couple cops, uh, a couple FBI guys. Well, first off, it's hilarious that like in this movie about swapping faces, that's the part that bothers you is that the surgeon also cuts hair. No, I said that's the part about the surgery that bothered me. I'm okay with the surgery just being blah, 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 science fiction. Fine. I think you only see close-ups of the hands cutting the hair. So it is possible that it was someone else who worked there that Troy didn't know about who just cut the hair, who didn't get killed in that scene later. Fine. I mean, whatever. That is like... An insignificant detail, but okay, as a doctor, it bothers you. Fine, that is fair. But also, like, in terms of the surgery, there's a line where Archer says, like, oh, well, you're going to get rid of my scar, and I'm going to need that scar later because that's how I remember my son who was killed. So it's not even just the face and the hair. It's everything. And these two men, John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, they have different... Body types. Oh, they mentioned that. They do liposuction. They said, we're going to take care of those love handles. Okay, so that they make Archer skinnier to look like Troy, but then how do they make Troy fatter to look like Archer? The same way people have butt implants. You can inject fat. You can just put it anywhere. That part, to make your gut bigger or smaller, that part you could do in 1997. That part, I, I think, would be fine. Right. I guess it still just plays into the whole time for healing thing where these guys just have the surgery and maybe the next day they're fine we don't know how many days pass because whatever but a part that you know i'll bet if they didn't include it we would have wanted them to include it and now that they did include it i'm not sure i wanted it but john travolta is now really the bad guy john travolta's wife sleeps with him 
I guess she was raped for for a week. You know, hundred percent. But the thing is, do we now assume that either John Travolta and Nicolas Cage have identical penises, or did they do a dick transplant? I can't imagine that they did a dick transplant. But like the whole raping of the wife is incredibly problematic for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that it doesn't affect the plot at all. Right. I, I think it's not problematic in that Caster Troy is a complete sociopath. I think it might have been interesting to explore a little more how, how that uh, traumatizer or the thing he doesn't do is he doesn't use it to his advantage or we don't see him like really try to get this woman it's kind of just implied and the effects of it are implied and like i said if they didn't mention it we would have wondered about it now that we know that in this movie it it does happen it's not explored at all and it's it's kind of a fascinating thing that you know maybe it would have brought the movie into a different direction but it's a big deal that they don't either don't say anything about it or actually do something well i think troy raping eve that's the name of the wife it doesn't stand the test of time in a me too era because if they made this movie today one of two things would happen either troy wouldn't rape eve and she would just not have sex with him and it wouldn't come up at all or troy would rape eve and there would be consequences to it Maybe when they're having sex, Eve figures out, hey, this isn't my husband. My husband doesn't have sex in this exact way. I mean, they've been married for a very long time. We see Troy talking to women and he's like, suck my tongue. And like, obviously that's going to be a different kind of sex than what this woman is used to with her husband. So yeah, maybe she would notice. Maybe she would notice that there's a a missing scar or a weird patch of hair or something that the surgeons didn't do. Or maybe not, maybe at the end of the movie, she says to Archer, fuck you, you let a murderer into my house, he raped me, I will never forgive you, like you are out of my fucking house and you are out of my life forever. That would be appropriate. Instead, at the end of the movie, Archer's like, I'm so sorry, I hope you'll forgive me. And she's like, well, we'll worry about that later. Now we need to get this guy. It's like, wait, what the actual fuck? Caster Troy is among the worst of the worst. And Eve, the doctor, yes, she's a doctor. She she got this uh, idea of she's a capable woman. And and she eventually uses her scientific knowledge in the hospital to take a blood test. And she really isn't that instrumental later on. Uh, When the wife meets uh, Nicolas Cage, who is her husband, I would have liked it for her to have, oh, okay, this makes a little sense because there's been some weird stuff with my husband lately. You bring up an interesting point. They don't do that at all. Right. There are no consequences to the rape. I'm not saying that they can't show a rape. I'm saying that if they were to show a rape, there would need to be consequences. And there are none. When Archer comes to see Eve, and of course he looks like Troy and she's freaked out, he tells her that he is not Troy, that he is really Archer, her husband, because... They have different blood types, and that's how he can prove that he is who he says he is and that the man pretending to be her husband is not really her husband. And when he said that, I literally was screaming at my TV, which is weird because I watch this movie alone in my basement, but I was like, tell her about your first date. Why the fuck are you talking about blood types? That is the stupidest fucking thing in the world. Tell her about your first date. And he does... 
But like three scenes later, after she sneaks a blood sample from Troy, who looks like Archer, and then goes to the hospital and tests the blood and figures out, aha, it is the wrong blood type. Like, why would you make this woman go through all of those fucking hoops to prove it? Tell her a story that that guy would never know. Like, what the fuck? It's so painfully stupid. And I'll say, having had to draw blood for blood typing, uh, you need a lot more than a drop of blood. Maybe, I guess, if you took a drop and she looks at it under the microscope, I don't know what, what it looks like. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think you could do that. I think they all look alike. Yeah. I would imagine that. I don't know. You did this in, in college or high school or something. Didn't you, like, blood type or ever have one of those kits or something and you mix the different... Uh, no. You basically mix blood with uh, different types of blood, and the one that clots is that's the blood type. But basically, you need more than a drop of blood. Yeah, and, and she does look under the microscope, and I'm not an expert on this, but I think that's not how you tell someone's blood type by looking at it under a microscope. I think you have to do some kind of test. You do some kind of test. It's a protein that it's either the A, the B, or both the A and B, or neither of them. That's what you have, and I don't think you could see those if, as far as I know. They are antigens. Are you correcting me in saying they're not proteins, they're antigens? I'm saying the technical name of these proteins is antigens. I guess. There's a big, big uh, action scene about two-thirds of the way in. It's basically evil Sean Archer. So that's John Travolta, who's actually the bad guy. He leads the FBI to try to capture uh, Caster Troy, who's actually good. And there is a young child in this uh, bad guy's den. And Nicolas Cage, he doesn't want a six-year-old boy who reminds him of his son. He doesn't want this poor boy to hear any gunshots or anything. He puts noise-canceling headphones on this little boy, Adam. And what's playing on the noise-canceling headphones? It's Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And it's a beautiful version of it. It's actually Olivia Mm Newton-John. John Travolta's co-star from Greece. Right, of course. This is the John Woo Hong Kong action scene. I think the scene's really cool. I'm guessing you didn't like it, though. Don't put words into my mouth. How dare you? You do not have my face and my voice box and my hairline. I thought this scene was fine. I didn't really love the uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow thing. I thought that was just like trying too hard to do something extra stylized in this dramatic shootout that I was like, I don't need to hear the song that the kid's listening to on his headphones. I see what you mean, but I think he pulled it off. Okay. I mean, also, did they have noise-canceling headphones in 1997? I don't know. I th- It was just one of those big, uh, puffy headphones that was, was good enough. You know, on like all those game shows back in the day, they'd be like, all right, go to our soundproof booth and put on the headphones so you, yeah. so the ladies can't hear their husband's answers. You know, those uh, newlywed game kind of things. Right. So something like that existed or the volume was turned up very loud. There's a cool shot where uh, John Travolta and Nicolas Cage are both holding a gun up to each other, but there's a mirror in between them. So they're each looking at themselves, who is the person they hate, but it's their mirror image. It hits you on the head, what what he's trying to say. I liked it. I know you didn't like it. Al's making a face. He didn't like it. That's a hat on a hat. That is a little too on the nose and is completely unnecessary. We get it. Um, this happens much earlier in the movie, but this also made me yell at my TV in the basement. When Archer escapes from the prison, this prison that he's in, this maximum security prison, is on a 
barge somewhere in the middle of an ocean, maybe. We have no idea where it is. Oh, we do. It's actually like a mile off the coast of Los Angeles. Right. You're saying that because of what made me yell at my TV. We see Archer dive into the ocean, and I said out loud, the next time we see this guy, he better not fucking be in L.A. He has to go on a journey to get back home. And, of course, the next time we see him, he's in L.A., in a car, calling uh, Troy and telling him, I'm back and I'm coming for you. How the fuck did he get there? Again, a line would have helped. And it still would have been eye-roll worthy if he had said, well, you know, I was captain of my swim team in college, or lucky there was a boat going by that I was able to commandeer something. Like, how the fuck did he escape? Where is this prison? You presume maybe it was like in international waters because they say that the Geneva Convention doesn't apply here. We can torture whoever we want. Also, by the way, Archer, in his escape, he shoots a lot of prison guards, and yeah, he's desperate because he needs to get back to his family, but he's also an FBI agent who kills a lot of good guys. At one point, he shoots acid, acid, at prison guards. Like, you would think there would be maybe some consequences of that, but no. According to uh, IMDb, he doesn't kill any of these guys. And there is a part where he knocks a guard, like, off the railing. And he makes sure he, like, can still hold on so that he's not uh, he's not going to die. No, that's not a guard. That's, like, his accomplice who's a convicted murderer or some horrible bad guy that he's trying to help because that guy helped him. And, okay, fine, maybe he's not killing all these prison guards, but he's certainly aiding and abetting the other convicts who are killing the prison guards. Also, he, like, frees all of these prisoners to create a distraction so he can get out, which, I mean, does that help if they're on a barge in the middle of the ocean? I mean, it helps him escape, but, like, these are things that an FBI agent shouldn't do, which, again could have all been avoided if they had just told the fucking warden, hey, here's what we're doing. So you got to imagine that everyone in this prison probably deserves to be there. I mean, Pollux and Castro Troy deserve to be in this prison. Right. But you would imagine that you got to keep this shit tight, locked down. These guards that are there, I'm guessing they're getting paid good money. They're doing like six-month, 12-month shifts, kind of like your oil rig, and that's the cover story. They're on an oil rig. That's why no one questions why they come back with $250,000. These oil rig guys make a ton of money. And this thing is a mile off Los Angeles. These guys are obviously going home every weekend. Like, (laughs) there is no way this prison stays quiet. One of these prison guards blabs during a drunk night in in a bar. Like, that's what happens. You don't get $250,000 for working on the oil rig, like, a mile offshore that you go to every day. You get $250,000 because you're away from your family for six months. Like, the only reason this is not in the middle of the Pacific is because he needs to swim home. Right. All of it is very, very dumb. But eventually there is the big face-off between Archer and Troy, and the climactic showdown between these guys goes on and on and on. Well, it starts out with a big church shootout, and there's a, a Mexican standoff, and there's like five people there, and pretty much everyone gets killed but uh, John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. And Eve. And Eve. 
However, right when this Mexican standoff, everyone's holding the gun at each other, there's the John Woo signature shot. Do you, do you know what that is? No, what's that? So John Woo's signature shot is doves. He has doves in like a pivotal scene. So okay. I'm sure you saw the doves like flying through this uh, church in slow motion. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was not subtle. Also, John Woo is like maybe bordering or right there with Zack Snyder in his love of slow-mo. There's a lot of fucking slow-mo in this movie. There is an unnecessarily slow-mo dove that flies towards the camera. I'll, I'll give you that. Or maybe that dove is just a little slow. Can you flap your wings <laughs> once every other second and stay buoyant in the air? I'm not a dove expert. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a dove expert either. But after this uh, church standoff, they run down to the pier. There's a chase. And one last guy is unfortunately killed. Some poor guy in his motorboat sitting on the pier. Uh, John Travolta had gone to him and said, get out of the boat. I have a gun. Kind of jumped in the water. But no, he AK-47s him. I mean, he shoots and kills lots of people at the end of the movie. Just anyone he runs by, he just shoots. Yeah, it's, it's a shame. But this boat scene, there's no CGI in this. And this is where a lot of the money went. You're right. It goes on a while. It's explosions. If you had told me Michael Bay like was on the set that day and was like, hey, let me direct this for you. I'll direct for free. I'll do it. I would have been like, oh, look at the work Michael Bay did for this film. It's a fight that just won't fucking end. I did think it was interesting, like, when they realize that the fight is coming to an end, Troy, like, starts cutting his face. And remember, his face is really Archer's face. So it's like, haha, you'll never be able to get your old face back, even if you kill me. And I thought that was, like, pretty interesting. And I was pretty sure that the movie ended with Archer getting his real face back. But I was like, that would be a pretty cool twist if he doesn't, because... In one last fuck you to Archer, his bitter rival, Troy, like, mutilates himself. I thought that was, like, kind of interesting, but that's not what happens. He kind of cuts his face a little bit and then dies, and Archer is still able to get the face back at the end. No, it's even worse. Like, he doesn't cut himself at all. He basically outlines—he almost does the beginning of the surgery for the surgeon. Right. He basically cuts at his hairline and then does, like, you know, the pencil beard. Uh, I think what you just said is very interesting. He could have, like, a total sociopath. Who's going to cut their own face? That hurts. Right. But he gets a surgery. He looks like John Travolta again. He comes home, and Eve is so excited to see him. She's not mad about getting raped all those times. It's fine. Also, she didn't bother going to, like, see him in the hospital because they need to have the big reveal at home, which I get from a movie perspective, but also, like, if she's going to stay with the guy, you'd think she'd go to the fucking hospital. But he has one last surprise. It's Adam, it's Troy's son. He's adopted him, and now he's bringing him home, and they can raise that guy's son as their son, and everything's fine. And holy fucking shit, James. This ending is infuriating. It's so fucking bad. Like, everything goes back to normal, like a fucking episode of Full House. Are you kidding me? Like, that is so anticlimactic. It's such bullshit. And I rented this movie from my library on DVD, like I often do. And one of the special features was 
an alternate ending. And I'm like, oh, I want to see the alternate ending. Maybe it's better. Maybe they did something really cool and interesting with the other ending. Nope. It's basically the same thing, except then Archer goes and looks in the mirror and Eve walks in and sees Nicolas Cage's face and is horrified. But then, no, no, it really is just John Travolta's face. So it's like the lingering effects of the trauma, which, okay, maybe that's a little bit interesting, but also is still a shitty ending. I'm guessing the ending didn't bother you as much as it bothered me. The thing that bothered me was that it was too perfect. I mean, he gets this kid at the end, but there's a lot more to it than just picking up some drug dealer's kid and just raising him as your own. Now they have a happy family, and in a weird way, they're like, John Travolta says to his daughter, he says, show your new brother his room. And it's like, show him Michael's room so he could be completely replaced. Because this boy looks identical to the dead son. Right. And Adam, we're now going to be calling you Michael. Like, what (laughs) the fuck? And not just like, I'm annoyed because it felt like a sitcom where everything reverts back to the way it was at the beginning. But like, there's no lesson. Archer has been on a journey. One hell of a fucking crazy-ass journey. But, like, did he learn anything? Like, did he gain some knowledge? Well, he says to the surgeon, hey, I don't need that scar from the bullet hole that I used to keep as a reminder of my dead son. Now it's okay. But, like, why? He was obsessed about catching Troy, and then Troy's dead, so that is what cured him? That is his journey? Like, that's really fucking anticlimactic. I actually remember having a problem with that second surgery scene the first time I saw the film. Because in the original surgery scene, when uh, John Travolta gets Nicolas Cage's uh, face, he tells the surgeon, this scar where I, I was shot through, killed my son, I want you to put the scar back. Like, I need everything back because I need this pain. I need everything. And at the end, I actually like it. He doesn't need the scar back. He still has the memory, of course, of his of his son. But he doesn't need that painful reminder every day when he looks in the mirror. He Maybe he can move on a little bit. But he goes to the surgeon and he goes, you know that scar? I'm not going to need it again. And the surgeon's like, okay. This is not Dr. Walsh. <laughs> he has no idea what he's talking about. So I think as a doctor, I think he was like, you don't need me to do whatever weird thing you're saying. Okay, I will not do that. You got it, sir. Like, I think he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? And then as soon as he was unconscious, he turned to the anesthesiologist and was like, what the fuck did you give that guy? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, But because we are at the end of the movie, I will ask you, James, do you think face slash off stands the test of time? You know, I think that it's shot beautifully. I think John Woo is is a very capable director. You know, when you give someone $80 million in 1997, I don't know, I'm going to guess the, the Hollywood equivalent is like a $150 million film today. That is a lot of responsibility. And, you know, once in a while you get these uh, directors, I don't know if you heard of this guy, Josh Trank, he made a smaller film, Chronicle, and then yeah. Fox gives him like $100 million to make the Fantastic Four remake. And, I don't know the full story about it, but it may have been overwhelming for for the guy. And this guy pulled it off. I mean, he seems to have seamlessly gone from Hong Kong films to a smaller Van Damme film, then the bigger uh, Broken Arrow film. And now, I mean, this guy is, he's basically said, I can handle whatever big budget you can do. You know, people make fun of uh, Travolta and Nicolas Cage a little bit. 
I think they're great actors. Um, first of all, especially when they get a great role. But this is a very meaty role for an actor, I'll say, because in the beginning, Travolta's a good guy and Nicolas Cage is a total psycho bad guy. And I think you successfully get the idea that halfway through the film, oh, John Travolta, you're a sleazy sociopath. And I feel bad for Castor Troy. I really see it, I don't know, in his eyes or something. And at the very end, it's kind of creepy when you see nice John Travolta again. I think it's great acting. I I do. I think the actors pull off that particular role that they have to do. Um, Something else I think is very intriguing. The new plan of Castor Troy in John Travolta's body I think it's fascinating. He tells his brother, we're going legit. And basically, he's going to say, I'm going to save 20 million people in Los Angeles. He's basically the new Elliot Ness. Like, he is bringing down all the bad guys. Had this trajectory kept going, Archer becomes a senator, maybe even president of the United States. I mean, I feel like America would love a top cop that saved Los Angeles and saved millions of people. I think it's a fascinating story that he kind of assumes the identity of a good guy and then uses it. That goes nowhere. So that being said, there's one thing I I do disagree with you on this film. I disagree that the film really does take itself seriously in that I think this film knows it's a bonkers film. That's what I think. I think this film stands up, stands the test of time because it's a bonkers film film. This is not two villains that that are antagonists to each other and they are drawn to each other. Maybe they even love each other in a sick way. A Batman and Joker kind of combination. No, I, I think this is kind of more in your Michael Bay kind of category. I described this film to my girlfriend before I watched it. I didn't tell her a single thing, but I told her it stars Nicolas Cage and John Travolta and if the director could give them one note of direction, it would basically be, all right, John, I want you to do this in like the way like someone doing a John Travolta impression would do this film. And Nicholas Cage, uh, Nick, you do the same thing. Do a full ham it up Nick Cage style. That's what I want. And I think these guys deliver. Wait, wait. You're saying that John Woo told Travolta to be extra Travolta and Cage to be extra Cage? In certain ways, like John Travolta as the bad guy looks at Nicolas Cage, who, who is the good guy, in such a John Travolta way, he goes, you good looking. And it's so John Travolta. And I, I love that. And there's just a part where uh, the good guy, Nicolas Cage, he has to take some drugs. You assume it's some kind of hallucinogenic, whatever. And... He's starting to talk a little more philosophically that you wouldn't expect the sociopath to to do. So then Nicolas Cage, his eyes open to the size of silver dollars. And he does such a Nicolas Cage look. I'm shocked I have not seen this film in 20 years. But I, I think it's a fun film. A ridiculous fun film. And I say it stands the test of time because I saw it that way. If you see it as a serious film... It's ridiculous, but that's not how I saw it. So for me, it stands the test of time. What do you think, Al? Does uh, Face-Off stand the test of time? Well, first, I think it's interesting that you are commenting that it's Nick Cage being extra Nick Cage. It's Nick Cage doing Travolta, but really it's Nick Cage doing Travolta doing Cage. Yes. And, And, you know, also the inverse. When you think about it, that makes your head hurt. And you also get why Travolta and Cage 
were probably really excited to do this movie because as an actor, that's like a crazy unique challenge that you're never going to get to do except in a situation like this. And yeah, what fun. Like, I totally get why they would sign up for this movie. And you saw who originally was going to be cast as the lead roles, I'm sure. Stallone and Schwarzenegger, which like, uh, okay, I don't know that that really works, uh, but whatever. Another thing you said that I thought was interesting about do these two antagonists like really love each other? Apparently, in some early draft of the movie, there is a whole backstory with Archer and Troy that they were lovers. And what? The, yep. And that the reason that Troy goes after Archer in that very first scene where he accidentally kills Archer's son is because Archer had rejected Troy and had gone on to marry a woman and have a kid. And Troy was so bitter about that. That's why he goes after Archer, which I thought was fascinating. So he's not an international terrorist. He's just a spurned lover. Well, I think he's both. Like they had some relationship at some point, maybe before he was a terrorist, maybe before Archer was an FBI agent. I think that's really, really fascinating. But apparently John Woo didn't like that idea and thought that audiences wouldn't like these characters if they had been lovers before. Maybe American audiences weren't ready for that kind of a story in 1997. To me, I thought that was really, really interesting. But, you know, the movie doesn't bother with that. I really wanted to like this movie. I really wanted to be able to just turn my brain off and enjoy the bonkersness of it all, of Travolta doing Cage doing Travolta and Cage doing Travolta doing Cage. Like, it seemed like I was going to have fun with it. And I feel like on this podcast, I shit on action movies all the time. And honestly, that kind of bums me out because when I was a kid, I loved action movies. And maybe it's just a function of getting older. Maybe my tastes have changed. I really want to watch an action movie that I like. I really, really, really do. But this movie has way too many problems. It has way too many plot holes. It has way too many things that don't make any fucking sense. They treat Eve like an object, like a trophy. Like, haha, I slept with your wife. He. She barely reacts to being raped. Like, there's so much wrong with this movie that bothers me, like, on every level. I can't say that it stands the test of time. I have to say no. And one thing that I would have said does stand the test of time, which maybe you disproved with uh, the audio of your girlfriend, but that would be that even if you never saw this movie, if you hear Face Off, you know, oh, that's a movie where they swap faces also, apparently, there's maybe going to be a Face-Off 2. Like, I read something the other day about, like, the screenwriter of Face-Off 2 says he really wants to get Nick Cage back. And I'm like, wait, they're making a sequel? What the fuck? And, you know, hey, we started this episode talking about Top Gun Maverick, which I was dismissive of, but a fuckload of people are paying good money to see. Maybe people would spend money to go see Face-Off 2, Face-Off 2 year facer offer i don't know what the fuck you would call it but maybe people would go see it but also no you really don't need to make a fucking sequel to this i don't think it stands the test of time i really hope at some point we can watch an action movie that i will like but this movie ain't it that's gonna do it for us this week next week we are going to be talking about legends of the fall i don't know what that is that's a movie that you've picked 
Is it an action movie? Doesn't sound like one. Um, it's got some action. It's got World War One in it. Are there any faces that come off in that movie? Um, well, no, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Uh, there are some scalps that come off. Oh, okay. Well, I guess that's somewhat related. Until then, of course, as always, we want to hear from you guys, the listeners. We love it when you write to us at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tell us what you think about Face Off, about faces coming off. You can also email us at TestedTimePodcast at gmail.com. And we will see you next time, everybody. Bye.